Views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Listen to me, Q. You seem to have some need for humans. Hmm, concern regarding them. Well, whatever it is, why do you demonstrate it through this confrontation? Why not a simple, direct explanation, a statement of what you seek? Why these games? Why these games? Well, the play's the thing. And I'm surprised you have to ask when your human Shakespeare explained it all so well. So you did, but don't depend too much on any one single It's a pity you don't know the content of your own library. Hear this, Picard, and reflect. All the galaxy is a stage. World, not galaxy. All the world's a stage. Oh, you know that one. Well, if he were living now, he would have said galaxy. How about this? Uh, life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I see. So how we respond to a game tells you more about us than our real life, this tale told by an idiot. Interesting cue. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Perhaps maybe a little, uh, hand? Oh, no, I know Hamlet. And what he might say with irony, I say with conviction. What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form, in moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. Surely you don't see your species like that, do you? I see us one day becoming that, Q. Is it that which concerns you? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, April 21st, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on our conversation today. And we have a rather unusual show for today. And we're going to be talking about art and culture um, and basically mostly in um, the play and television area, I guess you would say, Robert? Well, the spoken word to keep in line with what we're doing here. Now... You know, it's often been said that I don't know much about art, but I know what I like, (laughs) you know, and that was pretty well much my own attitude towards art, which includes everything from music, theater, film, television, printed novels, comic books, and of course today we're going to concentrate just on a few areas, but, you know, that's kind of how I felt before I began reading what Ayn Rand had to say on the subject, so... Today, Robert is going to take the highbrow road to artistic appreciation dealing with Shakespeare, Oscar Wilde, Samuel Beckett, and the like, while I take the lowbrow approach later in the show with a look at detective spy adventure genre, that whole genre, through the eyes of a current TV show called Chuck, which I've discussed on the show before, and an early 60s show called, if you've been around long enough, The Man from Uncle, which starred none other than... Robert Vaughn. All right, the get the jokes here. over right now. <laughs> no, no, no jokes yet. We'll, we'll save them for later in the show. <laughs> and, of course, David McCollum in the roles of Napoleon Solo and Ilya Kuryakin. 
just idle escape to, escapist, mindless entertainment, or is there really something of value and deeper to consider in our choice of artistic entertainment? Both Robert and I will be relying heavily upon the guidance of Ayn Rand, as this is an area in which she excelled, and it's interesting to compare what she has to say to the, to the genre and the ideas that are being expressed in, in the popular media today. So from William Shakespeare to the likes of the Avengers, a man from Uncle and Chuck, we'll be exploring what past and current trends in arts and entertainment tell us about the values underlying our culture. Are they the values of a freedom culture? or of a culture that is heading in another direction. What do you think, Robert? Yes and no, Bob. Yes and no. Yeah, there's always yeah. a bit of both. There's never, it's never black and white when it comes to uh, people's tastes, I think, out there when you're dealing with so many people and so many ways to sure. express oneself. And um, talking of expressing oneself, I was recently asked on uh, Facebook by a quote friend, uh, which of Ayn Rand's books influenced me the most? And I had to answer The Romantic Manifesto. You're familiar with that uh, mm -hmm. book, right? Now, this, uh, it's the, this book, which has stayed with me all these 20 years since I first read it. Now, of course, there's more popular works of Rand that have become more favorites with many. But of all of Rand's works, The Romantic Manifesto has taught me the most, I thought. And it had to deal with aesthetics, art. It's about a branch of philosophy we rarely talk about. But just as important, in my estimation, as any other branches. Um, aesthetics is the fifth branch of philosophy after metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and politics. It's the study of art, and who among us does not agree that art is an important part of our lives? How many of us live from day to day without listening to music, without seeing a statue or a painting, a play or a movie, or even a television program? It's really difficult to get from day to day, from point A to B, without hearing some expression or some creation of humanity well, in the sure. form of art. And art is not just an expression and a reflection. It's also a trendsetter. Um, art, I, yes, it I, doesn't I think just art reflect. Is, it's, it actually it motivates. I've, changes. I've come up you know, with this issue a lot, even in normal political conversation. What can we do to change things? How can we change the world, you know? Mm. And... Uh, my answer is always art, yep. because that's the way that you can express what does not exist now, but could be. Exactly. And that's what I'll be talking about later in well, the show. Well, Ayn Rand that, is... That, that talks more about Ayn Rand did that. She's the epitome of it. Yes. I mean, she wrote a novel 50 years ago, Atlas Shrugged, and it's still resonating today. It's still out there. It just got, it just got made into a movie. Mm -hmm. It's changing people's minds. And it's more uh, needed today than ever oh, before. Oh, for sure, wow. yeah. Uh, along those lines, if I were to mention to you, for example, Whistler's mother, uh, who among us wouldn't know what that looked like? Think of rocking chair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We all know what that is. It's become a part of our culture. If I was to say to you, once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, you'd know at once, at least if you're <laughs> half decently well read, that I was quoting Edgar Allan Poe, who wrote those lines 200 years ago. And how about here with a loaf of bread, beneath the bough, a flask of wine, a book of verse, and thou. That's a thousand-year-old poem from Omar Khayyam, still resonating with us today, still changing our minds, still making us reflect after a thousand years. You know, art, whether poetry, music, painting, sculpture, play, or television program, is an essential requirement for the human mind. In fact, it is singularly human. No other animal has anything which can be said to be art or anything near to it. 
and art seems to be as old as man, with many artifacts dating back tens of thousands of years. It's an essential part of what makes us human. Art exists, I think, as an end unto itself, but not necessarily for the sake of itself. Are you familiar with the old... Uh, it was actually MGM's logo, Ars Gratia Artis, or Art for Art's Sake. It's not entirely correct, I think. Instead, it should be Ars Gratia Hominum, if my Latin is correct, or Art is for Man's Sake. It exists to please us. It's there to be contemplated by man. It needs only to be reflected upon, to be appreciated. A work of art lives, although its creator may be long dead and buried. It lives but only as we, man, can contemplate it. When the last man dies on this planet, so does all art die. From that point on, a novel will be only ink on paper, a painting only dried oil on a canvas, and a sculpt sculpture will only be a lump of marble. Art what required. a fascinating observation. Uh, you know, that, that strikes home, actually, <laughs> in a funny sort of way. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, that's, that wasn't Ayn Rand. That's <laughs> me, Bob. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking. Give I, me some credit. Well, I thought, I thought uh, that was something maybe Ayn Rand said. I never heard her say anything. That's a great thought, actually, because, of course, if there's no mind to reflect <laughs> what the art is saying, or, in the reverse, to be the mind that shines the light, sure. uh, there is no art. It's interesting. Art for art's sake is, um, I guess that presupposes human beings in I the think, mix I somewhere. I think so. <laughs> I use the phrase Ars Gratia Artis or Art for Art's sake all along because it presupposes an observer. And it might mean art as opposed to being used for, well, propaganda, for politics, yes. for other reasons. That you know? is not art. Art is not didactic. It does not. It is not meant to teach. It is meant to be contemplated on mm -hmm. for its own sake and for our sake, of course. Um, it requires, art does, at least two choices by the artist. The first is selection. What aspect of reality will he choose to focus upon? It can't be random, or otherwise it's not art. It must be chosen. The second is how the artist will choose to stylize the selection. Both the selection of the subject and how it comes to represent reality reveal the artist's sense of life. His fundamental philosophy encapsulated in a moment of song or image, evoking an emotion in those who perceive it. And likewise, the emotion that the piece of art evokes reveals something of the sense of life of the recipient of the art. And what makes good or bad art, however, is not a matter of how we as critics simply feel. It requires a cognitive evaluation of work, a thoughtful evaluation which analyzes style, technical ability, and subject matter. The result of such an analysis determines whether or not an artwork is good or bad. A value judgment is made, which says something not only of the artist, but of the viewer or listener. Now, Bob, I'm not a professional art critic, but as you just said earlier on... <laughs> <laughs> you just said this earlier on, Bob. I may not know art, but I know what I like. But not only do I know what I like, I know why I know what I like. And that's very important, I think. Well, that's what to me was a big change when I read Ayn Rand. I used that's to, the Romantic Manifesto. That's right. And I started realizing, well, that's why I like that and I don't like this. Yes. And we'll do a comparison of that later in the show with sure. some more current things. <laughs> yeah. Since this radio, uh, this is radio show, and it would be a little difficult to evaluate a painting or a sculpture, I'm just going to evaluate in a small way the art form of the play. 
and I've chosen two pieces from two of my favorite playwrights, William Shakespeare and Oscar Wilde. And I will compare them with a playwright I consider to be a particularly bad playwright, Samuel Beckett. The first clip that we're going to hear in a couple of minutes requires a bit of explanation, a little bit of a setup. So okay. if any of you have read or listened to Shakespeare without having the pleasure of seeing it performed, you'll understand that it can be virtually indecipherable without context mm -hmm. and a bit of explanation. I remember the first time I tried reading Shakespeare in high school, gibberish, didn't understand a word, could not understand what was going on. But when I heard it spoken, acted out in a play, I go, ah, that's what it means. You know, it reminds yeah. me of the first time I saw Mel Gibson play Hamlet. Marvelous production. And uh, I was just amazed at his performance. And I had to question whether the language was updated into modern terms because I understood yeah. everything. And it was there was not a word I didn't nope. understand. And it wasn't a word changed. That's right. Which led me to understand what they mean when they say Shakespeare is meant to be acted, not to be read. That's you know? true. Totally. <laughs> Now, the first clip you're going to hear will be from Love's Labor Lost. Love's Labor's Lost. Act 4, Scene 2, a BBC production from 1985 with John Wells in the role of Holofernes. The principal speaker, Holofernes, is a very learned schoolmaster who prides himself on his wit and intelligence. I like to think that uh, Holofernes is actually Shakespeare himself having some fun with the audience by showing off his remarkable skill of wordplay. So that uh, you might appreciate the clip a little more, I'll set it up for you. Holofernes recites an extemporaneous poem about the killing by the princess of a deer. Now, a pricket, as you will hear, is a buck of two years, and a sorel is a buck of three years. The L he is referring to, uh, or about to refer to, is the Roman numeral for 50, of course. And uh, listen for his false humility when he explains his gift for poetry and rhyme, and also for the sexual innuendo that Shakespeare is famous for when complimented on his skills by his friend curate Sir Nathaniel. Now, the second clip following the Shakespeare one will be from Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest, a marvelous, uplifting play about love and deception from the master of wit himself. The prevel princess pricked and pierced a pretty, pleasing pricket. Some say a saw, but not a saw till now made saw with shooting. The dogs did yell, put yell to saw, and saw L jumps from thicket or pricket saw, or else saw L the people fall a hooting. If saw be saw, then L to saw makes fifty saws a saw L. Of one saw I an hundred make by adding but one more L. <laughs> a <Yeah>. rare talent. <laughs> This is a gift that I have. Simple, simple, foolish, extravagant spirit full of forms, figures, shapes, objects, ideas, apprehensions, notions, revolutions. These are begot in the ventricle of memory, nourished in the womb of Pia Mata, and delivered upon the mellowing of occasion. But the gift is good in those in whom it is acute, and I am thankful for it. Sir, <laughs> I praise the Lord for you, and so may my parishioners. For their sons are well tutored by you, and their daughters profit very greatly under you. You are a good member of the Commonwealth. The Hercule, if their sons be ingenious, they shall want no uh, instruction, and if their daughters be capable, I will put it to them. <laughs> but the sapit qui pauca loquita. Huh? <laughs> <laughs>
Besides, your name isn't Jack at all. It's Ernest. It isn't Ernest, it's Jack. You've always told me it was Ernest. Well, I've introduced you to everyone as Ernest. You answer to the name of Ernest. You look as if your name was Ernest. You are the most earnest-looking person I ever saw in my life. It's perfectly absurd you're saying that your name isn't Ernest. It's on your cards. Yes, here is one of them. Mr. Ernest Worthing, before the Albany. I'll keep this as a proof that your name is Ernest, if ever you attempt to deny it to me, or to Gwendolyn, or to anyone else. Well, my name is Ernest in town and Jack in the country. Come, old boy, you'd much better have the thing out at once. I may mention that I've always suspected you of being a confirmed and secret Bunburyist, and I'm quite sure of it now. Bunburyist? What on earth do you mean by Bunburyist? I'll reveal you the meaning of that incomparable expression as soon as you are kind enough to inform me why you are Ernest in town and Jack in the country. My dear fellow, there is nothing improbable about my explanation at all. In fact, it is perfectly ordinary. Old Mr. Thomas Cardew, who adopted me when I was a little boy, made me in his will guardian to his granddaughter, Miss Cecily Cardew. Cecily, who addresses me as her uncle, from motives of respect which you could not possibly appreciate, lives at my place in the country under the charge of her admirable governess, Miss Prism. Where is that place in the country, by the way? That is nothing to you, dear boy. You're not going to be invited. I may tell you candidly that the place is not in Shropshire. I suspected that, my dear fellow. I have bunburied all over Shropshire on two separate occasions. But go on. Why are you Ernest in town and Jack in the country? My dear Audrey, I don't know whether you will be able to understand my real motives. You were hardly serious enough. In order to get up to town, I've always pretended to have a younger brother by the name of Ernest, who lives in the Albany and gets into the most dreadful scrapes. That, my dear young Algie, is the whole truth, pure and simple. Well, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. Modern life would be very tedious if it were either and modern literature, a complete impossibility. That wouldn't be at all a bad thing. Literary criticism is not your forte, my dear fellow. Don't try it. You should leave that to people who haven't been at university. They do it so well in the daily papers. I think myself a little qualified to actually talk about <laughs> you this. Have been university. You're listening to, well, no, you're not listening to the state broadcaster, if in case you <laughs> thought perhaps if you were with those uh, clips that you may be listening to the CBC. No, it's not. This is CHRW 94.9 FM. And you can give us a call at 519 661 3600 if you'd like to join us. And um, you can also find our shows online. Don't forget, you can go to www.justrightmedia.org and find all of our shows there. Now, Shakespeare should be no stranger to us, obviously. He's plays and sonnets about love and jealousy, betrayal, adventure, war, death, humor, and every emotion one could think of have stood the test of time being over 400 years old and still being played in theaters and made into movies to this day. Our first clip was a Star Trek clip. And... Um, Apparently they'll still be talking about Shakespeare hundreds yeah. of years from now. Oh, no doubt, no <laughs> doubt. As a matter of fact, Patrick Stewart, who played... Uh, Jean-Luc Picard was uh, a, a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company yep. in, in, in London. sure sounds, you can tell when, oh, he, yeah. when he gives those soliloquies, you know. Yeah. And um, Shakespeare's themes are universal to the human condition, I believe. His eloquence is iconic. He was a master craftsman of the English language. He was <laughs> creating many, many words in the English language. You know, it's funny, speaking of Shakespeare, he did, of course, affect greatly the whole Star Trek series quite literally, always comes oh, up, yeah. as, as does the Bible and other references yep. like that in the show. Yep. Um, He's a great artist with a positive sense of life, extolling the virtues of man, love, honor, heroism, justice, and beauty. 
Now, Oscar Wilde, from the second clip there, Oscar Wilde was a wordsmith as well and a commentator on the society of his day. His restrained yet rebellious nature is evident in his plays and stories. His positive sense of life and love comes screaming out of a Victorian background of suspicion and fear. His words help change the attitudes of a nation in a more enlightened direction. Now, these have been two examples of artists who have exhibited uplifting art stemming from a positive sense of life. Now, let's contrast that with um, artists who have the opposite sense of life, a negative, pessimistic sense of life, who choose as their themes the common, the vulgar, the depraved, the ordinary, the grotesque, and the mundane. Ayn Rand once wrote in the Ma uh, Romantic Manifesto the following... Misery, disease, disaster, evil, all the negatives of human existence are proper objects of study in life for the purpose of understanding and correcting them, but are not proper objects of contemplation for contemplation's sake. In art and in literature, these negatives are worth recreating only in relation to some positive, as a foil, as a contrast, as a means of stressing the positive, but not as an end in themselves that one should wish to enjoy the contemplation of values of the good of man's greatness, intelligence, ability, virtue, and heroism is self-explanatory. It's the contemplation of evil that requires explanation and justification. And the same goes for the contemplation of the mediocre, the undistinguished, the commonplace, the meaningless, and the mindless." Unquote. I once visited, Bob, I once visited the National Art Gallery in Ottawa. And there I saw a painting of oil on acrylic by Jackson Pollock. You know Jackson Pollock? Are you familiar with his work at all? No love, yeah. Yeah, it amounted to a, a random splashing of paint on a piece of plastic. A blind five-year-old could have replicated the work, or at least the essential haphazard na nature of the work. And concurrently... With no effort. It, it, it's paintings like Pollock's which have come to represent the pinnacle of ignorance in society, I think. So-called art experts have embraced the absurd and the unintelligible in some vain disguise at credibility. They've created a niche market for garbage where they've exalted themselves into positions of authority on the indefinable. Anybody who dares to negatively critique work such as Pollock's are ridiculed for being unimaginative, out of touch, or plebeian while they seem to hold some mystical understanding of these random scribblings and paint splashes. This is not unlike an astrologist claiming to understand human behavior by knowing the position of the planets at the time of your birth, or a witch doctor understanding what ails you by throwing the entrails of a sacrificial goat into a bowl and divining your ailment by deciphering the random <clears throat> patterns that the guts make. Now, now, it's interesting, when you opened up, you talked about art, the subject of the art by the artist has to be made by a choice. That's right. Right. So would you say that someone who throws something up on a canvas, that's not making a choice, or was the choice at the point where he decided to throw something <laughs> on the canvas? You know what I mean? Well, no, I think there's choice there. It's just a bad choice. Okay. Yeah, it's an expression of bad art. It's well, but, but again, how it hits the canvas... That's random. That's basically. random. Yeah, pretty That's much. not a choice, right? Pretty much, yeah. Unless you're a real good aim and, and yeah. can make it come out the same way every single time. That would be <laughs> art. <laughs> Create the same blot ten, ten times yeah. in a row. I would encourage people to go online and just <laughs> Google search uh, Jackson Pollock. Have a look at some of his uh, work, uh, his later work. His earlier work had a little more sense to it, but his later work and just 
the haphazard splashes of paint that supposedly mean something, which of course are just drivel, absolute drivel. Now, keeping with the spoken word nature of this show, however, I'm yeah, going to... That d- signature on the canvas is worth something, right? <laughs> oh, God, millions, millions. <laughs> and, of course, our taxpayers' dollars yeah. go to showing these things at the Ottawa National Gallery. <clears throat> now, I'm going to end uh, with a clip from a modern playwright who has garnered a, a following of astrologists and witch doctors who claim to understand his <laughs> verbal excrement. Samuel Beckett has written a number of plays which have as their theme if it could be said that any of his plays have a theme, the commonplace ramblings and disjointed thoughts of unimportant people. Perhaps his greatest known work, celebrated amongst the mentally challenged, is the play <laughs> Waiting for Godot. Yeah, I'm not being, I'm not holding back here, Bob. Yeah, I'm being I, I, cruel. <laughs> I know. Well, and anybody out there like Samuel Beckett, either. I'm sorry, but that's just, it's nonsense. <laughs> uh, Waiting for Godot. Ever seen it, Bob? No. No? Okay. I'm not surprised it's garbage, but anyway. It's a play about two men waiting on a hill adorned by a single tree who apparently are waiting for the man named Godot to meet them. If you haven't seen it, I don't think I'm going to spoil your day too much by revealing that they never meet Godot. (laughs) It's uh, intimated. They do a lot of waiting. (laughs) They do a lot of waiting. (laughs) Uh, Actually, it's intimated in the show, in the uh, play, that the two men have been waiting an indefinite period of time for this man Godot. Why? It's unexplained. Who Godot is, is unexplained. Who these men are, or why they are waiting for Godot, is left unanswered. While waiting, they briefly contemplate committing suicide by hanging themselves from the tree. Oh, jeez. And unfortunately, (laughs) for the audience, who perhaps had the same thought while watching the play, they changed their minds. (laughs) At some point... You got me interested now. (laughs) I've actually seen a number of renditions of this particular play. Funnily enough... I watched a documentary there last year where Patrick Stewart plays, um, I think he played Lucky in uh, Waiting for a Godot. Oh, is that right? And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, Was that Lucky? <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. no, it's not Lucky for the audience, <clears throat> believe me. Now, at some point, these two men are met by two other men, Pozo um, and Lucky, who arrive for no apparent reason, Lucky has a rope around his neck and is led by Pozo, who refers to him as Pig, commanding him to walk this way and that. And when a hat is placed on Lucky's head, Pozo, or Pozo, I'm not sure of the pronunciation here, uh, commands him to think. What follows is a five-minute logoria, a stream of consciousness that makes no sense whatsoever. In fact, it should be called a stream of unconsciousness. And why Beckett wrote this play, he's never revealed. The meaning of the play has never been explained, nor has the meaning of any of his other plays, which are equally baffling in their incomprehensible gibberish. And yet, Samuel Beckett is praised as an iconic figure in modern theater. 400 years ago, we had the likes of Shakespeare titillating our minds with his eloquence. Even a 100 years ago, we had Oscar Wilde to stir us out of our prudish malaise. And of late... We've had the psychological, pathological likes of Jackson Pollock and Samuel Beckett to mesmerize and stupefy us into mass confusion. Now, here is but one minute and 15 seconds of the five-minute drivel of Samuel Beckett. I didn't have the heart (laughs) to subject you any more than that, and I think it 
to play it's well anymore. Well done, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, well acted. <laughs> you know, I think if we played any more than that, we'd probably violate some CRTC regulation of broadcasting offensive material. <laughs> now, compare these clips from Shakespeare and Wilde that we played earlier, and judge for yourself which is good and which is bad. And we'll be back right after these. Waste and pine, and concurrently, simultaneously, what is more for reasons unknown. In spite of the strides of physical culture, the practice of sports such as tennis, football, running, cycling, swimming, flying, floating, riding, gliding, conating, camogie, skating, tennis of all kinds, dying, flying, sports of all sorts, autumn, summer, winter, winter tennis of all kinds, hockey of all sorts, penicillin and succedania, in a word, I resume, and concurrently, simultaneously, for reasons unknown, to shrink and dwindle. In spite of the tennis, I resume flying, gliding, golf over nine and eighteen holes, tennis of all sorts, in a word, for reasons unknown, in Thackham, Packham, Fulham, Clapham, namely concurrently, simultaneously, what is more for reasons unknown, but time will tell, to shrink and dwindle. I resume Fulham, Clapham, in a word, the dead loss per capita since the death of Bishop Barclay, being to the tune of one inch four rounds per capita, approximately, by and large, more or less, to the nearest decimal good measure, round figures, stark naked in the stocking feet in Connemara, in a word, for reasons unknown, no matter what matter, the facts are there. And considering what is more, much more grave, than in the light of the labour's lost of Steinweg and Peterman, it appears what is more, much more grave, that in the light, the light, the light of the labour's lost of Steinweg and Peterman, that in the plains, in the mountains, by the seas, by the rivers, running water, running fire, the air is the same, and then the earth, namely the air, and then the earth, and the great cold, the great dark, the air and the earth... Delicious, isn't it? A hunt fills the appetite. It's disgusting. Oh, but it'll make a good part of the story. How we slew the beast, remember? It attacked us from the dark. Five meters long. Oh, ten at least. Uh, eyes ablaze, fangs like daggers. Breathing great plumes of fire. <laughs> oh, it seems the son of Moog is not amused. A true warrior has no need to exaggerate his feats. Well, you better hope that I exaggerate, or else when they start singing songs about this quest and come to your verse, it will be, and Worf came along. <laughs> From Deep Space Nine. <laughs> One a very funny scene, actually, where uh, they go on a, on a quest, and it's pretty plain, everyday... <laughs> You know, happenings, and they have to make a great story out of it, right? Mm. Because the, the power of storytelling is so important. And, of course, if you aren't exaggerating a little bit in your storytelling and embellishing how you tell the story, you haven't really got one. Because most stories are not really that dramatic, except in the literary form, you know, in terms of life. Agreed. You know? Yeah, you know. Now, and welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you for another half hour or so. And in this half hour, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about a different genre of entertainment. As you know, my personal television watching habits have changed dramatically in the past year or so. And for the first time in my life since I was a kid, I don't have cable TV any longer, so I don't feel bound by any particular weekly time schedule, which caused a weird consequence, namely, found myself weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, oh, maybe seasons, <laughs> behind in watching a lot of my favorite shows. 
Yeah, often several seasons. I'm probably at least four or five behind on Desperate Housewives right now. You know. <laughs> but very recently, I found myself able to catch up on a few shows, one of them being Chuck. I don't know. I know you haven't seen that. You've seen some episodes. I've seen of, maybe the first couple episodes, yeah. yeah. It's a good show. Yeah. And it's one of those shows that I, I discovered thanks to actor Adam Baldwin, who as one of the cast of mm. Firefly became an actor whose career I kept an eye on, as I did with many of the actors from that show. Because it's a great way to find new shows that you wouldn't otherwise look for. Led me to shows like V, uh, Castle, uh, Chuck, of course, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was a great series because of just from the cast members. But one thing I have found in general is that there seems to be an increasing number of scripted television programs that hold promise in terms of what might be called a minor revival of romanticism. And in that sense, I'm talking about the literary term romanticism in television, which would be as, I guess, opposed to naturalism in stories or worse, reality TV which is kind of, to me, unnatural TV. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yes. And uh, now, uh, this, this was interesting because I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, some of the things Ayn Rand says, and I'll only be paraphrasing. Some I'll read, but uh, a lot, along the way, I'm going to be tossing in my own two bits. And I found the following standards interesting to use to help determine the philosophical nature of many of the shows I like to watch. But this is important, Robert. Just because of what I'm going to say now and maybe what Rand says, I don't want people, you know, certain programs are going to fail my own test of philosophical validity, but that does not mean that there's nothing of value to get out of some of these shows. You know, just this, we're on a different level. Nor does it mean that some shows which pass my a test of a romanticism, which we'll define shortly, uh, necessarily reflect a proper or objective rational philosophy. So whatever your favorite or hated shows might be, perhaps the reason of your like and dislike might be found in this following analysis. Now, Rand describes romanticism, and we're not talking about romance novels or puppy love or that kind of romance, which is a whole different thing. Uh, romanticism, she describes, is the conceptual school of art. It deals not with the random trivia of the day, but with timeless, fundamental, universal problems and values of human existence. It does not record or photograph. It creates and it projects. It is concerned, in the words of Aristotle, not with things as they are, but with things as they might be and ought to be. And that's pretty well what, uh, you know, that's what, <laughs> what political parties are doing, aren't they? Trying to create and project a world of something that ought to be and isn't because they're always trying to change what is. It's interesting you just combined politics yep. with aesthetics. They're, they're one and the same. Um, what the romanticists brought to art was a primacy of values. And values and value judgments are the source of our emotions. That's where we get our emotions from, from our value judgments. The romanticists philosophically were the champions of volition, which is the root of values, and not of emotions, which are merely the consequences. So choice is very important to you know, for a character to have in a, any kind of art where you could call it romantic. It is as a volition-oriented school that romanticism must be defined in Cisrand. So if man chooses volition, then the crucial aspect of his life is his choice of values. If he chooses values, he has to act to gain or keep them. 
If so, he must set his goals and engage in purposeful action to achieve them. And the literary form of expressing this is what we know as the plot. <laughs> and a lot of shows don't even have a plot if you look at them closely. Romanticism demands mastery of the primary element of fiction, the art of storytelling, which requires three cardinal qualities, ingenuity, imagination, and a sense of drama. Now, naturalism, on the other hand, discards these elements and demands nothing but characterization as a shapeless, you know, like a narrative, an, an uncontrived situation of, or prog progression of events. It's very purposeless, if there is any such thing, as, you know, the author may please. So it uh, sounds like Waiting for Godot. I, I just recently experienced a film, uh, or this, this experience, with a movie called Eureka, which I thought might be something like the TV show, which I like. And this starred Gene Hackman, and it was just terrible. It was just pure naturalism. Mm. I, I couldn't watch it for more than eight or nine minutes. Maybe it got better after a certain point, but I just could not sit through it anymore. Boredom beyond belief. And, you know, the implicit standards of romanticism are so demanding, uh, says Rand, that in spite of the abundance of romantic writers at the time of its dominance, this school has produced very few pure, consistent romanticists of the top rank. She would rank people like... Uh, Victor Hugo and Dostoevsky as romanticists. Now, she wouldn't agree with their philosophies mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, and of single novels, she picked, uh, 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 which one was it, Quo Vadis and Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, and she picked on playwrights uh, Friedrich Schiller and Edmund Rostand, who I don't know all of these people, but these are the people that she was identifying as being among the school of romanticism. And the distinguishing characteristic of this top rank, uh, apart from their purely literary genius, she says, is their full commitment to the premise of volition in both fundamental areas of, of, of the literature, in regard to consciousness and to existence, in regard to man's character and to his actions in the physical world. And of course, she says, the arch enemy and destroyer of romanticism is, again, altruism and altruist morality. And she makes a fascinating point here. Since romanticism's essential characteristic is a projection of values, particularly moral values, <clears throat> altruism introduced an insolvable conflict into romantic literature. Altruist morality cannot be practiced except in the form of self-destruction, because you're always the interest of someone else you're putting ahead of your own, right? What kind of story does that make? And so she says it's impossible to create an image of man at his best, quote, as he might be and ought to be. Now, of course, again, Rand warns of confusing the term romanticism and aesthetics with the term romanticism as applied to uh, certain philosophers such as Schelling and Schopenhauer who were avowed mystics, she said, advocating the supremacy of emotions and instincts and will over reason. So that was what she had to say on romanticism. And out of the blue, I read this other very not too well-known article because I know when I talk to other people who've read Rand, they haven't heard of it. And it's called Bootleg Romanticism. And in this one, uh, she says some fascinating things. And this was written in January 1965, significant because it was, she wrote this, I think, probably in response to having seen The Man from Uncle, hmm. <laughs> because that came out just in uh, the fall of 64. And, uh, but she writes about bootleg romanticism. To set it up, she says, you know, uh, fear, guilt, and pity, and she says more precisely self-pity, are the three emotions that are most engendered by generations of our anti-irrational philosophy. And she said, you know, you have fear due to the lack of knowledge, you have guilt due to the lack of moral values, and you have self-pity because of the first two, <laughs> right? You're suffering. And she says, in art, 
uh, fear, guilt, and the quest for pity, which is um, you know the victim culture, not the freedom culture, they combine to set the trend of art in the same direction in order to express, justify, and rationalize the artist's own feelings. And that's the primary for the artist in that kind of art is his feelings. But then she goes, she says, there's something still worse and morally more evil. Now here's where, you know, I don't know that I'd call man from uncle this terribly evil, but <laughs> she says the recent attempt to concoct so-called tongue-in-cheek thrillers. Thrillers are detective, spy, or adventure stories. Their basic characteristic is conflict, which means a clash of goals, which means purposeful action and pursuit of values, or to portray man as he might be and ought to be, you know, to, to go back to that. Now, they're not concerned with the actual definition or delineation of the values themselves, but taking those values for granted, they're concerned only with the battle of good and evil in terms of purposeful action, a dramatized abstraction of the basic pattern of you have a choice, a goal, then a conflict, then there's danger, then there's struggle, then there's victory. And that's almost formulaic, really, isn't it? And thrillers are, she says, the kindergarten arithmetic of which the higher mathematics is the greatest novels of world literature, more in the areas of what you were talking about, the highbrow stuff yes. <laughs> at the beginning of the show. Now, this is interesting. She says, now consider the meaning of the attempt to present them tongue-in-cheek. Humor is not an unconditional virtue. Its moral character depends on the object. To laugh at the contemptible is a virtue. To laugh at the good is a hideous vice. Too often, humor is used as a camouflage of moral cowardice by declaring, well, I was only kidding. And she says there's two types of cowardice in this connection. There's a person who uses humor as an apology for the evil that they're promoting, or they're using humor as an apology for the good that they won't talk about. Hmm. Okay. And she says the, both, the motives of both types can be united and served by a phenomenon known as tongue-in-cheek thrillers. And she refers to the Avengers, which of course was out in her time in the 60s. She says it's a sensationally successful British TV series becoming compulsive viewing for huge audiences. Steed and Mrs. Gale are household words. In, in the TV Guide of May 9, 1964, uh, Rand reveals that recently, quote, this is from TV Guide, the recent sorrow of producer John Bryce was revealed. The Avengers was conceived as a satire of counter-espionage thrillers, but the British public insisted on taking it seriously. And the secret didn't get out that it was supposed to be a joke until after it was almost out for a year, right? And it came out on another show. She gets into a whole deal of how that happened. And it was quite interesting. But then she goes on to say, you know, bear in mind that romantic thrillers are a very difficult job. And here we come. She says, an American television attempt at something like a counterpart of the Avengers, uh, one not burdened with talent or success, <laughs> and therefore offers a clearer, cruder view of the moral meaning of such alleged satires. It is a peculiarly inept, incoherent, unfocused show entitled The Man from Uncle. Now, before I continue with Rand's brutal critics, or critique, rather, of The Man from Uncle, we'll take a quick break to sample some excerpts from the two shows that I want to contrast in this category of romantic thrillers. The first is Chuck, which is running today, still running. And, of course, the second is The Man from Uncle. And we'll be back after these samples. Who on earth gave you the authority to call in a full tactical assault? I don't know what to do with you, but I know you're not ready for Rome. But, but General, it was Sarah. C come on, I, I had to... Do you want to see the bill for your rescue mission? It's longer than my copy of Atlas Shrugged. Look, you and I both thought the worst. 
that, that, that Shaw had gone rogue, that he was going to... Kill Sarah? Shaw? Sarah? Listen, we thought I betrayed my country. General, Chuck's actions were those of a true spy. He was looking out for his partner and the agency. I would have done the same myself. Maybe without the stealth bombers, but perhaps that's just me. Doing okay? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for saving me. I appreciated the tank. Now look, Mr. Uh, uh, Lawrence Sylvester Blendman, would, would you please tell me who you really are? Napoleon Solo. And I represent an organization designated as the UNCLE. UNC... Uncle? Well, isn't that some sort of a, a, a spy or secret service organization? Yeah, something like that. Uncle works for all nations. One of our responsibilities is to suppress any activity that might be a threat to world peace. In Iowa? Anywhere. Huh. Frightened? Yes. I mean, well, no. I mean, well, because I'm with you. Does that sound childish? Not at all. I consider it a beautiful compliment. In New York City. On a street in the East 40s, there's an ordinary tailor shop. Or is it ordinary? We entered through the agent's entrance, and we are now in UNCLE headquarters. That's the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement. UNCLE is an organization consisting of agents of all nationalities. It's involved in maintaining political and legal order anywhere in the world. My name is Napoleon Soto. I'm an enforcement agent in Section 2 here. That's operations and enforcement. I am Ilya Kuryakin. I am also an enforcement agent. Like my friend Napoleon, I go and I do whatever I am told to by our chief. Oh, oh yes. Alexander Waverley, number one in section one, in charge of this, our New York headquarters. It's from here that I send these young men on their various missions. Wow, let's get out the popcorn and get ready for some real adventure. You know, Robert, I was about 12 years old when that show first aired, and I, I thought it was the greatest thing. I do remember that you know, show myself, yeah. yeah? And uh, Ayn Rand apparently disagreed. <laughs> and she points out, the initials uncle stand for a fictitious organization named the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement. But what kind of organization is it, she asks? What sort of law is being enforced and by whom? You know, we never really do find out. What we just heard was about the, the sum total of it. And she must have heard just that very thing that we just listened to not long before she wrote this. And she says, the hero who ba bears the su subtle name of Napoleon Solo is an agent of uncle and seems to be an American. His assistant, another agent, is a Russian named Ilya Kuryakin. No other nationalities are indicated. 
is this a world government police or is it a private group, a kind of, interna- of international vigilantes? In such episodes of the series as I've seen, no answer or explanation was given. Now, of course, she couldn't have seen more than maybe eight, you know, before this was written. Mm-hmm. But off screen, in an article entitled With Gun in Hand and Tongue in Cheek, TV Guide, October 24th, 1964, one of the show's producers is quoted explaining the matter as follows. And this is now the producer of uh, Man from Uncle in TV Guide talking. He says, I've been wanting to try something along these lines for quite a while. You know, international intrigue, but with comic overtones. We didn't want to do anything actually connected with the government because then we'd be doing anti-communist stuff every week. Instead, we've gone completely fictional and I came up with the word uncle. I thought it was a funny designation, kind of provocative. People might think it stood for Uncle Sam, which it does not. Or the UN, which it does not. (laughs) Finally, so many people wanted to know what the initials stood for, we had to make something up (laughs) to make it fit. So that's how that came into being, right? And Rand says, this is a very enlightening statement psychologically, but not very helpful politically and disastrous literarily, since it raises more questions than it answers. A, how is one to find any comic overtones in today's international situation. B, what would be wrong with doing anti-communist stuff every week? (laughs) C, if the nature and goals of the side representing the good are are unclear, can people be expected to root for it or care? This is something I found watching the show. You know, it was fun to watch in a way, but I never really cared. You know, I could take it or leave it. Yeah, okay, that was cute. And she goes, if the good is unspecified, what sort of evil can one find to fight for or against? They raise such questions as, if uncle is dedicated to international law enforcement, does that mean it protects indiscriminately any form of government? If so, then are we to regard the United States not as a champion of freedom, not as a land of political asylum, but as a protector of the established order, any kind of established order against the plotting of its victims? If so, then would Uncle have protected the Nazi government of Germany against the Jewish refugees? Would it protect Castro's government against the Cuban refugees? Would it protect the Soviet government against the refugees from one-third of the globe? That was certainly the implication of the whole series, and that's what they said they're out to do, you know? Uh, The presence of Ilya Kuryakin among the Knights of Uncle would seem to indicate the affirmative, which is pretty sickening, she says. Oh, it's not supposed to be taken seriously, the producers would probably answer. We're only kidding, it's all tongue-in-cheek. But the question is, she asks, which cheek, left or right? (laughs) (laughs) The answer is, she says, probably the middle. That is, tongue stuck out at the audience in the name of nothing in particular. And that's the end of Rand's part on there. Now, she went on to rant against uh, the acting of Robert Vaughn as Napoleon Solo. <laughs> I'm telling you, she hated this guy, Robert. <laughs> and I think she started getting confused between the character Napoleon Solo and the actor because yeah. she did not like this. She said, quoting the actor once again from TV Guide, Vaughn says, uh, I'm playing Solo lighter than Sean Connery plays Bond. Lighter is not the word for it, responds Rand. Mr. Vaughn giggles, chortles, snickers, leers, and sneers without any discernible reason, but with an air of bored... Uh, supercilious amusement throughout an entire show, no matter what action is involved. You know, there's some truth to that. You know, I I agree with her choice of actually uh, picking on the artist because an artist selects his medium, doesn't he? So when Robert Vaughn well, chose... do hungry actors select their, their medium Well, yes, much? they can yeah. do that, yeah. An actor uh, who, who, who wants to portray a, a virtuous society is not going to play a buffoon mm-hmm. who, who plays the opposite. 
So she may be right in, in her, yeah. her condemnation. Well, she says his performance is, uh, however, persuasive in one respect. It conveys eloquently that if you're interested in any of this, you're a fool. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, not too happy. So I don't know what I'm going to do with my three-episode collection of Man from Uncle now. But, uh, now, in the same essay, Rand goes on to admire the first of the James Bond movies, Dr. No, as, being, as falling into the romantic category, while predicting that the rest, there was only one other that came out and another on the way, uh, already were progressively falling into that tongue-in-cheek um, trap of the Avengers and the Man from Uncle. And did she ever call that one right? Because that's what happened to, to um, the whole James Bond series. It became... Octopussy? Yeah, it became totally silly. And only recently has Moonraker. a bit of that romanticism come back into the series with, with, oh, yes. with a lot of uh, yeah. you know, positive response by audiences. Yeah, Casino and, Royale, the late one, was uh, fantastic. Right. And uh, now, of course... Um, I'm watching the show Chuck, which of course falls into the same thing, and it has a lot of humor in it, so you might think, well, it's taking this same genre as tongue-in-cheek, but that's not how it is done. The humor in Chuck does not come at the expense of the characters or the show's plot theme or premise. The humor is genuine. It's directed at an event, a character flaw, or an inconsistency, or maybe just an outright funny situation that happens on the show all the time. The humor in The Man from U.N.C.L.E. comes at the expense of the characters and what they represent themselves. They're almost, yeah, they are laughing at themselves. Yuck, 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 you know? How long can you keep that gig up, you know? And the series did get popular to a point, but then died out very quickly, too. And according to the U.N.C.L.E. philosophy and mandate, we hear Napoleon Solo explain that U.N.C.L.E. works for all nations. One of our responsibilities is to suppress any activity that might be a threat to world peace. Well, this sounds exactly like the responsibility to protect doctrine that you were talking yes. about a couple of weeks ago, Robert, being used <laughs> as our reason for going into Libya on grounds unprecedented. So we have the living man from Uncle here. The living man from Uncle is going over to Libya from Canada. You know, and, and, and he says, Uncle is an organization consisting of all nationalities, continues the show's narrator, involved in maintaining legal and political order anywhere in the world. So never mind the reason for the political disturbance. Don't distinguish between the good guys and the bad guys if their dispute could, you know, disrupt the order of anything in the world, which is dictatorship, let's put it. That, that's the truth, right? Yeah. And, of course, Ilya Kuryakin going, I do whatever I'm told to do by our chief. So what are they fighting for, the men from Uncle? For multiculturalism, for no distinctions between cultures. For moral equivalence, no distinctions between right and wrong with regard to anyone's particular issue. For political equivalence, suppress any activity, maintain the global status quo. This is Uncle's mandate, all excused and justified by the show's apologetic tongue-in-cheek dismissal of necessary distinctions. And, you know, I think I know what Rand was saying when she, when she says they're really saying, ah, oh, we don't mean it. Well, how can you mean it, you know, when it comes down to that? Now, on the other hand, with Chuck, it's a whole different story. Every choice that Chuck makes is a moral dilemma, as he continually weighs the moral pros and cons of the obstacles in his way, but always keeps his eye on his goal. With Chuck, it's a constant weighing of his hierarchy of values. Is Chuck's mission more important than his love for Sarah? How can he maintain his friendship with his best buddy Morgan and the respect of his sister while keeping a lot of his agent, secret agent stuff a secret, right? Are the lies he has to tell them from time to time an act of betrayal or of love and of protection? These are heavy questions that come up and they really make you care about the character even though so much of the show is totally improbable and silly right down to it in some ways and yet the show 
has this depth to it. And I think people are realizing it's a good show. That's why it's been hanging in there. It's been a, one of those shows on the precipice of cancellation season after season. And on every mission, you're always asking, who's really the good guy and the bad guy? Who can you trust? What are the nature of those trusting issues, you know? And in The Man from Uncle, the show is about what Uncle wants. In Chuck, it's what, about what Chuck wants. That's what the show is about. He's striving for the good through nonviolent means and likes to avoid physical conflict when, he, when possible, but spends a lot of his time learning that that's not always an option. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do, right? What Sarah wants to be rescued from, his girlfriend, is the kind of life that the men from my uncle are trapped in, in a funny sort of way. She sees in Chuck her salvation. And, of course, um, there's a lot of other issues. Uh, the, the thing about all of the dilemmas faced by the characters in Chuck is that they make the viewer care about the characters, no matter, again, how improbable. Uh, the situation might be, be. Viewers never really care about Napoleon Solo or Leah Koryakin in the same way. They don't spend their time morally or ethically evaluating their orders or their missions. Now, personally, I don't think any of this makes the show unwatchable since there are often other elements of the show that are that can be interesting and appealing. Any show can be, right? I, I've told, I've mentioned before on this show how I, I watch some, some crap every now and then because I like certain aspects some of it. Some brain candy. Sure. And there might be times when I would prefer to watch an episode of uh, Man from Uncle over Chuck, maybe, because I might be tired or distracted, and a show like uh, Uncle doesn't demand as much from the <laughs> viewer, which is kind of funny, and I was reminded when I said that to someone else, nor does it reward the viewer as much, and that's very true. Interesting, too, you, you have a little bit more about family values. Uh, you know, in the world of Uncle, we never learn anything about the main characters' families, their upbringing, their friends, their values. They're just isolated literally agents for someone else. In the world of Chuck, family, just about every character's family is a constant consideration. And uh, so, you know, that's where we're at, and that's just an overview of some of the shows that you might want to watch on this long weekend coming up because mm -hmm. we're going into the holiday weekend. Chuck does continue. It's been bringing a, a fascinating cast, including John Larroquette and Linda oh, Hamilton, no. uh, who have joined um, just hilarious performances. I mean, th this show just keeps getting better, and it has its occasional even episode but never a bad one um so it's a long weekend we got a bit of cooler weather you know it might be a good weekend for some catch up on tv times and that's why robert and i decided we would take a slightly lighter look at basically philosophy and aesthetics and things like that i've enjoyed this, this talk yeah, Bob, this was fun. to do this again we will but for now we've got to get out of here because another week is over and we hope that you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey on the right direction until you until then you know what to do be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. In the city, you must fight to survive. He sold tortillas on the corner. And the mob wanted in. I don't know who this guy is, but I want him and his tortillas dead! He had one chance, and his chance was to fight back Arnold Schwarzenegger. Listen to me. These are my tortillas, and I'm not going to get them out here. Are you listening to me? You have to get out of here. I need to let go.